And welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. This is the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and share their story. They may have overcome some kind of trauma or faced adversity, or they may still very much be on their journey. But with stories that will make you laugh, cry, and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. My guest today is a courageous young woman. She's speaking out about her own mental health struggles in order to help others and not feel so alone. Holly Ramsey is a podcast host, influencer, mental health advocate, and one seventh of the well-known Ramsey family. As the daughter of one of the world's most renowned TV chefs, Holly is no stranger to the wonderfully Instagrammable lifestyle. But after an incident Holly was involved in at university in 2018, Holly's mental health took a huge hit. Holly was diagnosed with PTSD, anxiety and depression, but after reaching her lowest in 2020, Holly decided to take the control back. She recently celebrated one year without alcohol and with her focus on mental health being at the forefront, Holly is helping others too. With her own brilliant podcast, 21 and Over, Holly is using her role model status for good and we are so excited for you to be inspired by her today and hear all of her wisdom. Welcome to the pod, Holly. Hi, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good, yeah. I'm really pleased to have you here um, because I kind of discovered you through the algorithms um, on Instagram, which is sometimes so badly out and like recommend stuff to you that you're like, what What was that? And I started to read a lot of your captions and a lot of your pictures used to sort of stop me in my tracks. And it's funny because I'm a lot, a lot older than you, but a lot of the stuff you talk about, I it really related to me and it, it actually helped me kind of on a day-to-day basis. How old are you for the, for the benefit of everybody listening? I'm 22, but I have definitely been told that I seem a lot older. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like those sayings that they say that like, oh, when they look at a baby and they're like, she's been here before. Like there's been a, there's <laughs> been a pre- previous life, like why is beyond your years? Do you, mm. do you feel like it's, it, it's kind of, you know, your generation are a lot older than say my generation were at that age? Um, I think definitely my generation is... I think with the help of social media, everyone is very open about everything, Mm. um, which may make people seem more mature because there isn't as much of a stigma about speaking out. Um, So in a sense, we can seem older than we are. Um, But I definitely take it as a compliment. (laughs) It's interesting you said with the help of social media. So would you say you see it as a positive thing because like for me I do think social is massively positive but I was thinking about your life versus my life when I was that age and I made lots of mistakes growing up I I did lots of things that don't rep who I am now and it was only my mum that kind of knew those mistakes you know and I we didn't live in a world of perfection like you guys have to now mm-hmm. do you think sometimes that's hard for that for that generation yeah, it's it's very difficult. I mean, social media has benefits, but it also has a lot of negatives and it can be a very scary place. Um, it's a relationship that I've definitely struggled with over the years and only now I feel like I'm at a good place with it. Um, there's a lot of competitiveness and comparing and there's two very different sides, a very healthy side and a extremely toxic and unhealthy side and when you notice you're going into the unhealthy side it takes a lot of strength to kind of pull yourself out of it and take a break um, step back from the screen and 
get back to kind of the feel good posts, um, definitely growing up. I mean, I was 13 when I got Instagram, um, which I think was like the age you were allowed to get it or the age my parents allowed me to have it. Um, and I had to be on a private account, um, Mm. until I was allowed to go public. And even then there was a lot of pressure about kind of how many likes does this post get or, you know, these are the hashtags that everyone's using at the moment. Um, so I'm just kind of living in the moment. And <laughs> I think hopefully as a place on social media, we're all learning to kind of, we are all still learning mm. and a lot of people make mistakes. And I think sometimes the fear of judgment when making mistakes is so huge and the kind of the cancel culture and everything when this could be avoided because it's so much more toxic to beat someone down when Mm -hmm. they've acknowledged that they've made a mistake. So I'm hoping that the world of social media is evolving and is becoming more forgiving, but as with everything, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, it's interesting, the cancel culture thing, because I was was listening to someone else on another podcast the other day saying they they can't be cancelled because what they put out to the world isn't perfect and they they don't pretend to be perfect mm-hmm. and they and they show all that and and they by that they feel they're uncancelable and and that sometimes when you put out a wholesome perfect image that's when you're more vulnerable at people kind of wagging their finger at you and saying mm. you're not perfect you're not this person you claim to be do you think there's such thing as being uncancelable then i personally think that someone's always going to have something to say You can tick all the boxes that you see. You can be as inclusive as you can possibly try to be. But unfortunately, there is always going to be someone or a few people who don't like what you're doing, who don't agree with what you're saying. Um, And this is just from my experience. There's always going to be someone who's going to try beat you down. Um, I would love to have the mindset of, you know, I'm I'm imperfect, so no yeah. one can beat me down. But yeah, I think that that would be like an easier said than done kind of frame of mind. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting what you've chosen to do because the message you're putting out to the world um, is really strong. It's really helpful. It's very empowering for women. And mm-hmm. I think when we start using social, it might start out as, as sort of staying in touch with people and having fun. And then it does become our shop window and it does become... Mm-hmm you know, our message to the world. And it really looks like you've chosen to be authentic, to show, you know, you've got your privacy, you've got your boundaries, but you've chosen to try and show us a well-rounded view and and a realistic view. And I try to do it too. And I know it's not always easy. You know, sometimes I look at other people and I think, oh my God, look at them, their fun life, mm-hmm. look at them in their bikini. And sometimes I worry about my posts, am I enough? And it, do you struggle with the consistency? Because it's oh definitely something I do. Mm, all the time. Because I think the thing with mental health is that, you know, sometimes every day is a bad day. Sometimes you have a good day for two weeks straight. Um Yeah, it was definitely, my social media was something I realised it was looking too perfect when, you know, all my days weren't good. Um, And it took a lot of time to kind of get into the posting, the more realistic stuff. And in a way, I had to grieve the perfect Instagram that I had. Because I was, you know, I was getting a lot of comments, a lot of likes, you know, I don't want to do this for the likes. I don't really care about 
how many likes this post has, but it's the way that I can connect with people and someone's able to send a message and say, thank you for that. You know, yeah. I feel seen. And it does, it, it feels good to be real. It's it's more stressful and more overwhelming not, not mm. to be, you know, in, in the long yeah. run. And I wondered with you, you know, thinking about mental health and how we're able to, you know, we've never met, we're on Zoom together now and we're able to mm. kind of talk about this so much more openly um, than say like 10 years ago. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know myself, I've, I've struggled with PTSD, anxiety, depression. And when I was younger, it used to be like, you're, you're mental, you're crazy. Like, mm. you know, if I told people that about me, they might not want to work with me. I might not get a boyfriend. Like it really had that kind of stigma. And I think now people not only understand it more, they, they believe it. Like it, it's mm. as real as you can't go to work when you've got sickness and diarrhea. You can't go yeah. to work when you've got mental health problems and I know for you you had an official diagnosis do you think when you get a professional diagnosis it it gives you a bit more clarity and like sometimes it gives you a bit of closure on right this is what it is and I can start Mm. on this journey now definitely I mean receiving my diagnosis whilst it was terrifying it was also okay how can we fix this how can we we know what it is how can we go forward from this and my parents are, they're problem solvers. If I were to go to them with anything, they'd, they'd say, okay, how can we move forward with this? Mm-hmm. But if I have a broken leg, I wouldn't expect mum and dad to help me with that. And I think that was something when it came to mental health and um, my diagnosis that we, we were all kind of like, whoa, okay, who do we go to next? Um, so that took a bit of time to kind of understand that this is where the professionals have to come in and mm-hmm. this shouldn't be treated any different differently than if, if, if it was a broken leg, you know, you'd mm. get surgery, you'd go to treatment and then you'd keep up the rehab on your leg afterwards. It's so true. And like, that's one of the kind of gaps we need to bridge that mental and physical health are intertwined and mm. both carry professionals that have trained for years to understand how to help you treat and, and recover from, mm-hmm. from what is essentially an illness. Was yeah. it something that had kind of blighted your life before or was this the first time when you got this diagnosis that you'd identified of having mental health problems? Because for me, mine was significantly more after I went through my trauma. But if I mm-hmm. look back, I had had sprinklings of it through my life, mm-hmm. but maybe not as severe as after my uh, traumatic incident. Yeah, 100%. Um I would say, I mean, I've always said that I was probably born anxious. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been very shy. <laughs> Me too. Um, and like a lot less outgoing than my siblings, um, which is difficult when you're in a big family because everyone is kind of loud voices. Everyone's such a, a force of energy. Um, you're one of five, I, aren't you? I am, yes. A- and a twin um, as well. And a twin. <laughs> yeah. I'm the middle child. Oh gosh, you've got it all. <laughs> Makes it even better. <laughs> um, no, there was definitely, I definitely had to fight for what I wanted when I was younger. Um, but I was also very happy to sit back and let my siblings kind of lead conversations and make introductions to different friendship groups. And then I would kind of join later on. Yeah. Um, um, and then I'd say with depression, I... I definitely experienced very low moods more than the kind of normal that you would expect a teenager to experience. And I think there was also a lot of a lot of guilt because 
I mean, I am very aware of the fact that I come from a very fortunate background. I have very loving parents who have worked very hard for what they're able to provide us. I'm very close with all my siblings. So there was a lot of kind of, why do I feel sad when seemingly everyone keeps saying that I have everything. So there was a lot of mixed emotions, which is why I didn't speak about it for so long. My dad always says, work hard, play hard. But then I started going out and playing a lot harder than I was working. Do you think it was Um, masking something? A hundred percent. Yeah, fashion has always been my first love, but I completely fell out of love with it. Um, I was studying fashion design. Um, I was barely turning up to class. Four out of seven nights I was clubbing. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't spending as much time going home to be with my family, which is very unlike me because I'm very much a homebody. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I was always looking for kind of the next party or when I was at a club, where can we go after the club to continue the night? And it's funny because friends would mistakenly be like, she's such a laugh. She's always out. She's always Mm. up for it. She comes to the after parties. And that's what the world sees. You know, like you said, somebody that seemingly got everything is, is always up for it. But behind that can be deep entrenched pain, particularly Mm. if you don't feel like you have the permission to be experiencing that pain. Like when, when you drink alcohol, you have that kind of the come down the next day because you're a exhausted, you're dehydrated. So I used to always think it was just the anxiety and yeah. the kind of, I'm sure I'll be fine after I have some water and get a good night's sleep. And our culture normalizes that. It's okay to exactly. go through that perpetual cycle, you know? Mm-hmm. And as a student as well, and being British, everyone was mm-hmm. like, it's university. This is what you're meant to do. Mm-hmm. We're just going to get up and do the same thing tomorrow night. Um, but I was I was in a different friendship group back then, which I have moved away from now, which has been definitely quite telling of kind of who's really there for you or I would say the benefits that I was able to bring to friendships. That's tough. That must have been a big decision mm. and, lo- and a lonely decision because even mm. if you feel like, you know, friends or, or partners are perhaps using you for what's what's in it for them, it's still lonely to to end those groups and to walk away from people. You know, that's hard. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I've never been through a breakup because I've never had a boyfriend, but I've been through many friendship breakups, which I feel are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. If not, sometimes for me can be worse. Um, And when you realise that this friend isn't your friend for the right reasons and you've got to kind of you've got to cut them off and then you've got to kind of go back to square one, figure out how to make friends again. Because I think that's something that also isn't normalized is kind of making friends in your twenties or when you haven't been to university or haven't finished university is very difficult. Even now my circle of friends is it's very small. It mainly consists of my siblings. <laughs> yeah, but I do think that's quite friends. normal. Yeah, I, I mm. mean, I'm I'm very similar. And I always think there's moments in life where you make friends. It's like when you're a child at school, then it's like when you become a mum and you make friends through other mums with babies. Mm. And I just think if you lead a life that may be slightly different to sort of traditional, so like nine to five life, it can be difficult to to find genuine people or people that get you and understand you mm. or support you. I mean, that's one thing that's standing out for me where I just want to like hug the younger you when you talk about this guilt and 
of these mental health problems because I had the same, you know, like after what happened to me, I've got an incredibly supportive family. I had a great medical team that helped me. And then I obviously went on to share my story publicly and, and write books and make programs. And with a lot of those highs and that amazing support became a lot of lows as well. Mm. And I was like, well, I'm kind of famous for being strong now, so I can't not be strong. Um, and even when I went on to get married, it's a lot of pressure. yeah, it, it's a pedestal to be put on that's not realistic either. Um, mm. And, you know, even when I got married and met my husband and stuff, I sometimes felt depressed. And I thought, I can't tell people that because other burn survivors don't have this life and don't experience what I do. So I, like you, kind of really suppressed it. And my coping mechanism did manifest as alcohol as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I can never really put a label on it, but I have a, a, a fraught relationship with it myself that is that mm -hmm. is kind of complex. And so I'm thinking about you back in that time, you, you know, you've got this great family, but you don't want to burden them and talk to them. Friends are questionable. Who did you talk to? Like, did, did you access therapy? And if you did access therapy, did you do it properly? Because I've been to therapy where I don't engage properly and I've been where yeah. I really <laughs> do do it properly. Mm -hmm. um, no, I didn't go to therapy. I kept it all to myself. And it was interesting because when I was really struggling, everyone in my family knew that there was something wrong, mm -hmm. but no one had any idea what it was. No one could guess and like my my twin who I'm very close to he tried we'd go on drives together and he would try and kind of coax it out of me and I would just kind of put up this front I didn't let anyone in um so it was a very lonely time and but the thing with being self-aware whilst it's great it's also <laughs> very draining because yeah. it's, you know when you're being um, unhealthy to yourself when, but you, you don't necessarily, you don't have the strength to stop it. Mm -hmm. And you're constantly analyzing every mood that you're in and kind of overthinking this and overthinking that. And it's just kind of, your brain does not stop. It kind of heightens the anxiety, doesn't it? Because you're almost mm. like, you're almost your own therapist, your own critic, and yeah. you're sort of condemning yourself. And then you're trying to be your own cheerleader on top of that. Exactly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. 
one of the things I think that has been good on social is people have talked about um, not just like negative coping mechanisms, but positive stuff. And we kind of see all the stuff we know about, you know, connections, getting outside, exercise, stuff like that. But one thing someone in particular has been doing is Dr. Alex, who was on Love Island. Every, mm-hmm. every single time in his feed, he puts a picture of his hand and he, a picture of the meds that he takes. And he's yes. like, post my pill. And the first time he did it, I was like, oh, I didn't know he took antidepressants or anti-anxiety tablets. And that's a big thing for a doctor to say that. Because mm. again, years ago, if a doctor had said that, I do think people would have been like, should you be in charge of patients? You know, yeah. are, are, are you fit to be in a senior role? Which is crazy to think that society used to be like that because actually what he's doing by taking meds is he is in control of his mental health and, mm. he, and he is taking personal responsibility and he's treating mm. what is a chemical imbalance in his brain. You know, that's a, a, yeah. a medical thing. So, and then you go and look in the comments and just loads of different types of people, men, women, young, old, all are like, thanks to posting, just reminding me to take mine, nearly forgot to take mine today. And you're like, this is the whole community that has existed. It's not a new thing, it's existed forever, but it's just never been Mm. able to to talk about it. And it is something that you openly talk about too, right? A hundred percent. I was on medication when I first went into treatment um, and I was on antidepressants, anti-anxiety. And then because of my PTSD, I really wasn't sleeping. So I was on a lot of sleep medication. Um, so from January last year until September, I because I had I'd been on medication for two years then. So then I was like, you know, let's let's feel everything again. Let's bring in the highs, bring in the lows. That must um, have been a scary because that's a big decision, isn't it? It's yeah. not easy. <laughs> it was terrifying, even just kind of with going to bed without having taken something to sleep like my mind was just racing. There were nights where I didn't sleep, um, a few nights in a row when I was like getting to bed at four and being up at seven. So it was exhausting, but I needed to feel all the feelings again. Mm. I had gone kind of too long because I was also drinking when I was on medication, which I should not have done. Did they, did they tell you that? Cause some doctors don't tell you that. And when you Google it, it's emphasized, isn't it? Some doctors are kind of like, oh, it's okay. You can have one or two, but I'm now back on medication. I started again in September, a different medication and I, I'm not going to drink whilst I'm on medication because, um, I was dissociating and that was terrifying. And this medication, I feel it's helped me so much. I feel so much different than I did on the last medication I was on. Um, and I don't want to lose this momentum that I've gained mm. and the, the kind of the positivity that I'm feeling. And I'm actually enjoying things. Like I get up every day and I make my bed without fail. That's good. And discipline. I haven't done that for years. Yeah. Yeah. Those things are really important though. That, like, those, mm. it's, it sounds like a small thing, but those, those small things are the big, the big things, you know? Exactly. Was it, yeah. was it a difficult though, like a difficult decision? Because like we talked about it being such a big part of culture, alcohol, and particularly mm. in your twenties, but you've got this burning thing inside knowing that this is right for you right now. Like, how, how easy is yeah. it to make that decision? Um, it was definitely a difficult decision. But I, I really wanted to get better and enjoy things again. Um, 
and I wanted to move out. Um, and I wanted to give everyone that security that I was going to be fine. If I move out, you don't have to worry about me. Um, and dis- dissociating on a night out and then waking up the next day and having no memory of what happened terrified me. Yeah, and as someone who's been through trauma, the last thing you want is to lose control mm-hmm. or have no memory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided, you know, I, I can't keep doing this. I'm being, it's damaging to myself because I keep setting myself backwards in terms of my recovery. And I'd worked so hard. I'd done the whole year prior um, in EMDR therapy. So I'd done I did that. all this work. Yeah. Yeah. I'd done all this work and I was like, I'm not helping myself. Like, let's give it one go. Let's just, let's cut out alcohol and just see what, what difference it makes. Mm. And at first I didn't tell anyone. Um, and then I think it was in March when restaurants started opening again, I'd have friends. Some friends did not get it. They were kind of like, oh, you can have one, right? Like how much longer is this going to go on for? Like we want to go out. And I would be like, no, but I am out. I'm, I'm here with you right now. And I don't have a problem with people drinking around me, but I just don't want to drink. Mm. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it highlights a lot more people get uncomfortable with the fact that I don't drink around them. Yeah. Cause they feel exposed. Exactly. And it makes them think for a minute. Um, but I would say that's why I'm very grateful that I do have my siblings because they get it and they have really great friends who I surround myself with as well. So I kind of cushioned myself into it. Yeah. See, I find if I make an announcement, then that's when people pressure me. So I I Mm. try to slip under the radar and I have like a tonic water with ice and lemon. So it kind of looks Uh looks like a gin and tonic. Looks like a drink. Yeah. And once people get past their second or third drink, they think I'm drinking too. They forget, they don't ask and it it goes away. It's quite fun. Yeah. (laughs) I always think it's that initial because nobody wants to think that you're going to be judging them when you're not at all. But it's, it's it's kind of like this whole projection and reflection actually about their own worries around alcohol too. Yeah. Um, definitely but yeah it's I mean it's really difficult and I think we should congratulate you on the year because that's really hard um and thank you yeah it's really it's really admirable and it's kind of taking that personal responsibility of like I need to get better and I need to do this for Mm. me and it's not going to be easy and I think there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that are in the same position as you because you know it's so interesting talking about that kind of PTSD side and not wanting to lose control Because Mm -hmm. I think that's where my relationship with alcohol was confusing because I wanted to drink because, well, I thought I wanted to drink to not remember things, forget Mm -hmm. things and just kind of disappear from the world temporarily. And and it it felt like that break. But really what it was doing was putting me in vulnerable situations, not Mm. remembering things wasn't an advantage and it was a depressant. And the next day I was not even back to square one. I was further back than square one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that was really hard. I suppose it's like this one big lie to ourselves that it makes us happy and confident. And it's just like, yeah, whoever put that label on alcohol because it wasn't yeah. true. <laughs> I know it's such like the idea of going out for drinks with the girls or yeah. drinks with friends. You know, it's so romanticized mm. when really like a Sunday brunch with bottomless drinks 
it never ends well. No. You know, someone always falls over on the way home. Someone's always sick by 6 p.m. Yeah. And it's never actually that fun the next day. And especially as a girl, like so much effort goes into like what you're going to wear, your outfit, yeah. your clothes. And in the, and actually, if you see yourself midway or half or at the end, you're, you're like a total hot mess, you know? And like, oh yeah, what was the point mm-hmm. of all that? And the photos <laughs> like can't be shown that were taken towards the end of the night. Yeah. Like, I'm just so happy for you that you, you've got to that place. And, and like you, I don't like to put any kind of label on it because I think mm-hmm. you know as women we, we we evolve we change like yeah you know nothing is kind of set in stone and I think that mm. that's the exciting thing about exploring yourself I think definitely and when I did make my announcement a lot of I mean it was picked up in the press and everything and a lot of people were putting the label sober on it yeah and I've never publicly called myself sober because I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if I come off medication and drink again or if I don't drink again. And I think the sober community it has so much weight behind it that I would never want to disrespect the label sober. Um, and this is the thing with cancel culture again. I think if I was to be seen having a drink in a few years, a lot of people would be like, well, I thought she was a role model, but now she's drinking. So that's why I've not put a label on it and people are putting labels on it. But as long as I know that I haven't called myself something, I've just said, this is for now and we'll see what the future holds. I totally agree with you because British culture is all about people going caught you 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 know you said yeah. this and 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 they really revel in mm. that and and it's really weird and mm. I, and I think that kind of freedom and flexibility is quite liberating um yeah. you don't have to live up to any label or anything you can just be you 100%. you know yeah exactly um so i don't want to take you back to um specifics of retelling traumatic things because i know when mm. people do that to me it's um it's not helpful. And, you know, I, yeah. I, I find even if not in that moment, sometimes days or weeks later, like, it actually has a negative effect on me. But mm-hmm. I know when you had your incident at uni, you did actually, you, you got admitted to a mental health hospital. I did, Is that yes. Because right? I was thinking, you know, I think that would have happened to me too, but because I was had my burn injury, um, mm. I was already in like a, a ward anyway. So yeah. I was in a ward for four months as an inpatient. And in that time, I had a psychotherapist that would come right. to my bed twice a week mm. and talk to me and I would have other kinds of therapeutic things. So mm-hmm. if I if I hadn't, I think I would have got admitted too because of my mental health. And I, yeah. I was interested to know, how was that for you? Because I was resistant in the in the beginning of that because it all felt mm-hmm. very forced and sudden. And, and I wondered what that process was yeah. like for you. So I told my parents what had happened. It was summer holidays. So they said, okay, go talk to, this is the person you're going to go talk to them. So I went to a consultant, um, had like the initial assessment. Um, and then she said, okay, well, why don't I see you again in a few days? Um... And then when I went to see her next time, I was very much, it was very difficult being at home because I was just reliving it. Mm. Everyone had just found out. I had just told everyone and it was causing like physical pain. Like I was, I had the worst stomach cramps. I was exhausted and we were due to go on a family holiday down to um, the coast just to kind of get away for summer anyway. And I was like, I just don't think I can go. Mm. So I spoke to my consultant, um, psychiatrist, and she said, look, 
we could send you here because this is a place where they really focus on trauma. You can receive treatment there. And at the end of the day, it was my decision. And whilst I really wanted to go and be away with my siblings and my parents, I knew that I had to put me first. Mm -hmm. And so I went into treatment and I had no idea what to expect. Um, When you go into treatment, like everything is stripped back from the clothes you would normally wear to the makeup you'd normally put on. It's just you in your comfy clothes, sat in a circle and you want to get better. Again, I'm also aware that I was fortunate to be able to go to a private healthcare. So everyone there, there was no one there who was sectioned. Everyone was admitted there by a consultant. So Mm. everyone wanted to get better. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a scary time, but I'm very grateful that I did it. I think Mm. I needed to go in and hear, because there's such a different kind of set of language when we talk about mental health. And because I never really spoke out before, I had never had these conversations before Mm. on kind of the words you can use, trigger words. Um, So it was so good. It was, it was a very educational time. I mean, I think actually what you're doing, you know, when you talk about something um, like an assault, you know, it doesn't discriminate against anyone. It doesn't matter how privileged or not privileged you are. It it can happen Mm -hmm. to anybody. And I think when you're talking so openly that you're doing, you're kind of helping other people heal and you're healing too. You know, it's like yeah, quite cathartic. it helps me so much. Yeah, it's like a, it's a very therapeutic process, especially when you can see that you're helping someone mm. because you're taking what you've learned and you're putting it to use. Mm. Do they help you too? Because like sometimes on my Instagram, I get people that tell me stuff, and it, and it is really helpful because sometimes nobody knows what sort of day you're having, and my my day might be yeah. a, a dark day, even if I've posted mm-hmm. myself laughing with a smoothie. It could still, you know, yeah. it's an archive picture, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll read something, and it will be like, yeah, that they, you know, they're right. And then other days, some people send me their whole life story, and it's so detailed, and it really causes me a lot of depression or stress or just mm. it's not and because it's on my I'm on the go it's on my fingertips and I'm like oh I didn't want to read that and sharing doesn't lead to a duty to to, to treat and cure 100%. people you know share, 100%. sharing is common ground you know it's not yeah saying I'm a psychotherapist totally you know oh I have no medical yeah. um, training I'm purely speaking from experience yeah um and I think again sometimes with mental health a lot of people forget that because because you've been through what you've been through and you say, this is what helped me. People are mm-hmm. like, well, that didn't help me. Yeah. So I don't know what you're talking about. And it's just kind of like, okay, I'm just sharing what I know. Because if that, if that can help one person, then I've done a good thing today. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and, and I feel the same. I, I feel like you're doing really good stuff with your podcast. We should talk about your pods. Um, uh-huh. It's called 21 and Over. Um Yes. Tell, tell me all about because it's a great platform to have. Tell, tell me all about it for people that haven't listened to it. So 21 and over is for the first time where I shared my story. Um, I wanted to speak out. I wasn't sure how I wanted to speak out. And then I came across the world of podcasts. Um, and I realised this can be totally my story. No one's going to edit it in a specific way. It's going to come out just as I've, as I've said it. Um, dad actually came up with the name. Um, I kind of came downstairs from my room and I was like, 
dad, I have an idea. This is what I'm going to do. And we sat there and we brainstormed different ideas. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And it was the first time I had done something by myself um, in the, in the public eye. Mm. Um, so it was big terrifying. Step. Big step. Yeah. Terrifying. Um, but it was such an experience and to kind of be in control of what we were speaking about weekly. And my co-host Tally, who's a psychotherapist, she's become a great friend of mine. And yeah, I just absolutely loved doing it. We spoke to so many different people from artists to Mm -hmm. singers to my tattoo artist and every single person has a story and I learned something from everyone and I was so grateful to the amount of people who listened to it and the feedback and the support I got and I'm coming back for season two. Oh, good. I was wondering that. Yeah. (laughs) I will be coming back for season two. I took a bit of a break because I took a dip myself, Mm. but I'm back now and I couldn't be more excited. Do you know what? I think that is the beautiful thing about pods. When you do podcasts like you and I are doing with with real people and and, and kind of talking Mm. to them about their lives and their stories, you realise that everyone has a story and sometimes yeah. when you feel alone in the world, it's things like that that make you realise, actually, you know what? Trauma is part of life, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence. It doesn't have to be this kind exactly. of thing strangling you for the rest of your life. And mm. we go on and it sort of starts to fade. And I, I don't think you ever get over these things that happen to you, but you learn mm. to live with them. Um, yeah. And I feel like this is where you, you know, the Holly today that's in front of me, I feel like, you are in the driving seat, you are in control, you know, you've got this clarity and yes, you had an incredibly difficult thing happen to you, but you navigated your, your way through that. And mm. just, it feels like without sounding cheesy, I just feel like everything's so much brighter for you now. Is, is that fair to say? I agree. I mean, I haven't felt this feeling in uh, years. I've just moved into a new apartment and I'm always kind of making sure it looks great. Like I'm really caring for the things around me. Um, I look forward to choosing my outfits every day and putting on makeup and something so small as like blow drying my hair and like washing my hair. But all that goes when when you're not well, that that self-respect, that dignity, that that wanting an identity, it goes. This is nothing to do with vanity. Like any, anyone who's been where we've been and is listening will totally understand this. So, you know, it's nothing to do with beauty or anything like that is mm. yeah and when when the want for these things comes back it's so exciting yeah I mean I'm also terrified <laughs> because I'm like now what do I do like I have energy during the day this is normally when I nap <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, it's terrifying but I'm, I'm excited I, I feel good which is very exciting. And you have, obviously, you know, you talked about at uni, um, you've got this huge passion for fashion. Do you, do you see, mm-hmm. that sounded so cheesy, passion for fashion. It always uh, does, but yeah. I always say it. <laughs> do you see that as part of your future? Because, uh, you know, for, from the little that I knew about you before and now talking to you at length today, I really see you as a really important person in advocating mental health. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. hugely relatable, you're real, you're honest, it's, it, you know, you're so true. What What do you think the future looks like for you? The future, if I'm honest, I think it's going to be a mix of things. You know, I, I'm so passionate about being an advocate for mental health and continuing to break this stigma 
Um, and I want to do anything and everything that I can do to continue these conversations and help others. But if I look at my day-to-day life, that's it's a mix of mental health. It's a mix of fashion. It's a mix of beauty. Like I think sometimes once you speak out about one thing, you're put into that box and mm. that's what you're going to do and that's yeah. all you can do. Whereas in reality, we all do so much in a day. Yeah. So if there's a way that I can combine all of that into one and kind of continue to make that my every day, I think that's kind of where I see myself going. Well, I think that's really powerful because you're actually saying we are multifaceted and we have these Mm. parts of us and it will not define us. We will not be defined by one story that we share. And I think actually that is a more powerful message and and that range you talk of is is what we all seek to be seen as whole whole rounded individuals. You know, it's so important. Mm. There's so much more to us whilst the experiences we've been through are incredibly painful and traumatic. That's not just us, you know. Mm. There's so much more, whether it's from favourite animals to favourite colours to your favourite tracksuit brands. There's Mm. so much more. And whilst I can speak publicly about what I've been through, I'm also going to speak publicly about what makeup I'm wearing today. Yeah. I'm going to bring it all together. Please tag all the brands. (laughs) I need to know. (laughs) I will. Do you know what? It's been so good to talk to you and it's just been so uplifting because, you know, although you're you're sharing difficult times as well, I I really feel it's genuine and that you're you're in this great place and I think, you know, you're doing great things for other people. So thank you for being an extraordinary person, just like the title says. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm so honoured to be a part Uh, of this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials.